Amen. Well, the, the problem when you, get, when you get a preacher to do the hosting section is that the, the host just preaches. So, uh, sorry, I don't know what that was. That was, that was like the pre-sermon. Here we go. Let's get up to date. Last week we were here and we were looking towards the end of John chapter 1 and Jesus begins to call some people to follow him. It's it's the calling of his first disciples. And so last week I entitled the sermon, Following Jesus Part 1, looking forward and recognizing that there were, uh, Jesus was going to simply call more disciples, you know, in the passage we're looking at this morning. So I thought, well, you know, the thing is when you, when you name something following Jesus Part 1, you've got your sermon title lined up for the next week following Jesus Part 2. But as I was studying this week, I discovered what I considered to be a far better title. But I already named last week's Following Jesus Part 1. So here's perhaps the longest working title we've had in the sermon around here for a long time. My sermon this morning is entitled, Following Jesus Part 2 slash Phil, Nate, and Fig Tree Schmigtree. So there you go. Maybe, possibly, it'll make sense later. It might not. But, but it makes sense to me from the text. I'm taking a a note from my son, Boston. He's a five-year-old. His sense of humor right now revolves around rhyming words. So he'll say, hey, Dad, Matt, bat, and laugh hysterically. He rhymed my name with bat. And so there you go. Actually, most of his rhymes have to do with what we would consider potty talk. And so, uh, which, to be fair, is hilarious. And yet, as a parent, you're supposed to have a straight face and think that that is so wrong, right? <laughs> By the time he's 28 or something, he'll stop doing that. Maybe more. Anyway, <laughs> what an intro, hey? <laughs> Where were we? I'm not sh- nobody's sure. Nobody's sure. So last week we talked about following Jesus part one, and, and the way we looked at the text last week was we discovered that we need Jesus that it's all, and what I mean it is everything's about Jesus, it's all about Jesus, and that we are changed by Jesus. That's following Jesus part one. This week, following Jesus part two, slash Phil, Nate, and Fig Tree Schmigtree, is that we see that Jesus calls, Jesus redeems, Jesus satisfies, and Jesus promises. We'll see a couple of the promises in the text, and he promises beyond and beyond even that. So, At this moment, you're probably confused. We haven't read the text yet, so that's probably part of it. Why don't we pray and then we'll get into it. How about that? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your grace. God, I thank you that you you speak to us through your word. You promise to do that. And so, Lord, we give ourselves to it this morning. We want to discover what you have placed in there the truths that are there, the context that is there, what it meant then and now what it means for us here. We want to work all of that through and discover, Lord, what you would have us here. So, Lord, I pray that you would um, use your servant as as he preaches this morning. May it be your word. Lord, I pray that you would use your church, each of us, to hear what you would say and that anything else on the periphery would fall away. May we hear your truth this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at this text. If you have a Bible, it's John chapter 1. It's the fourth book of the New Testament, the fourth of the four Gospels, and we're looking at the last little section of chapter 1. We started this series. It's called Backstage Pass. 
at the beginning of December. We call it Backstage Pass, a study in the Gospel of John, because there are four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptics because they're very similar to each other. They tell a lot of the same stories. There's a lot of overlapping. Then there's this Gospel of John, which is quite unique. It's just totally different approach. Many of the things said in it just aren't said in the other Gospels. Not only that, John was referred to by Jesus as the beloved disciples. And as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looked down and saw his mother Mary there and saw his disciple John there and said, John, behold your mother. Mother Mary, behold your son. He entrusted the care of his mother to this beloved disciple of his. So we have that going on. We have the uniqueness of John's Gospels. We call it backstage pass. It's, It's somewhat of a unique glimpse. And so we're looking at that here. We started that at the beginning of December. We're nearing the end of January and we're almost through chapter one. We're doing really well. So let's look at this last little section and celebrate being through chapter one. John chapter one, verses 43 to 51. Here's what it says. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Maybe that's a fair question. Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Firstly, Jesus calls. Following Jesus, part one, the sermon last week, looking at the text from last week, we saw this man named John the Baptist, we affectionately call JTB. JTB was standing with a couple of his disciples and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And he points over to Jesus. Well, Andrew, and what's likely John, he's not referred to, but it's likely John the Gospel writer, They just pick up and they follow after Jesus. They leave John's side and they go to Jesus' side and they begin to follow him. One of those, being Andrew, then goes to his brother, Simon. Simon who becomes Peter and brings Simon Peter to Jesus. Well, now we see in this text, verse 43, the start of the text we're looking at this morning, Jesus just walks up to a guy named Philip and says, come and follow me. And he does. What's common in all of this is that Jesus calls. We see it clearly. Jesus called even when Andrew and John just started trailing after Jesus. Jesus turns to them and says, what do you want? And they said, well, essentially they said, we want to be around you. And Jesus says, well, come. He invites them to come. He calls them to something. When Peter, Simon, arrives, Jesus renames him and Peter follows. He calls Peter. And now he just straight up walks to Philip and says, follow me. And Philip is intrigued, clearly, because he does. And he follows. Jesus calls. In a couple of weeks, we'll look at, uh, we're doing what we call here ministry partnership, which is membership, and, and baptism. And when, our practice around here has been to, to watch videos of the, of the people who are becoming ministry partners and getting baptized, to watch their stories of faith, their testimonies. They're Jesus' stories. 
So there's a uniqueness to them because we're looking at an individual and their story. And yet there's a commonality in it because we all, our hearts all just are engaged by it because we hear the uniqueness of their story and then we hear the commonality. Ah, and they found Jesus. Ah, they came to Jesus. Jesus found them. We, there's this commonality in that part. There, all of our stories, all of our testimonies, by the way, are Jesus stories. And therefore, we've got the same story. And yet at the same time, there's a uniqueness to it because he's created us uniquely. And so our stories differ. Uh, just like we see in these texts, the, the, the mode might be slightly different, and yet ultimately we see that Jesus calls us all. Uh, I grew up in a family of faith, and I had opportunity offer, uh, after opportunity to give my, give my life to Jesus and come to saving faith in Jesus. Um, I, I, led, I led worship for a, a breakfast in Vancouver a number of years ago where there was a speaker, kind of a prayer breakfast. There was a speaker there that morning from Iran. And Jesus met him in a, in a vision. This man was a Muslim. And Jesus appeared before this man, and he converted from Islam to Christianity. I mean, I can't really say, yeah, that's my story too. (laughs) That part's not. I was never a Muslim. I was never in Iran. And Jesus didn't appear in front of me in a vision, and yet that's his story. And yet then the commonality comes. Well, he met Jesus. A number of years ago, again, I was working with a young adult ministry in a church, and this girl started attending our young adult ministry and, you know, you, you welcome them and you notice that they're new and you ask them how they found us. And she said, well, I, I saw the Passion of the Christ at the movie theater. And I saw this story about Jesus and I believed it. So I went to the bookstore and I bought a Bible. And then I started, this is actually a similar story to my, my wife's in that when Emily bought a Bible and this young woman bought a Bible, they started in Genesis, start to get into, you know, Leviticus. Where's, where's the mention of Jesus? I'm like pretty into this book already. And so she started to come to church. She's like, I don't get it. I don't know what's going on. So she came to our young adult ministry. So there's something miraculous in that story. Here's what's miraculous. Mel Gibson was used to lead this girl to Christ. That's amazing. <laughs> Even the wild things. Our stories differ. The stories of these young disciples and how they come to follow Jesus differ. Your story, my story, they differ and yet they find their commonality in Jesus. Once Jesus calls, he, he calls us even in our uniqueness to serve in particular ways, and yet the way we are to follow is the same. Jesus calls us to follow after him the way he would orchestrate for us to follow. And so that's really exciting, and we see that in the text. If you're here this morning and it's your first time or you're very new to coming to church, um, I mean, you're, you're, you're tied up in this Jesus calls peace as well. I mean, you found yourself to be in a church and miraculously during the time of singing when we were standing and some people around you started to raise your hands, as odd as you thought that was, you didn't leave. You're here. There's a sense that Jesus is calling you in some way. He's brought you to this church and you've lasted to the point where there's a sermon. Good for you. Very, right? if, if, you're not, if you haven't done this much, it's a very odd world perhaps. And yet every one of us has this elements of being called by Jesus. We're drawn to follow. And so I'm glad that each one of you are here for whatever's drawn. Glad that Jesus is calling. We go on and we see in verse 44 that Philip was from Bethsaida in the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael. We don't don't know who Nathanael is to Philip. It it doesn't say a brother. It told us that Andrew's brother was Simon. So it's likely not a brother. Um, It's likely a good friend. Philip has 
the opportunity after encountering Jesus to go tell somebody, and for whatever reason, he decides to go to Nathanael first. And so we see him go to Nathanael, likely because he's a good friend. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I just love that that's in the Bible, by the way. Um, can anything good out, come out of Nazareth? That's a fair question, all right? Like, um, there was a, a, a pastor who used to preach here a lot. I'm not going to name names. He attended the first service even. And he used to make the odd comment about Agassiz. I lived in Abbotsford for a long time. We like to make comments about mission. Vancouver likes to make comments about Surrey. But to be fair, we all like to make comments about Surrey. So it's not really like a neighboring... It's not so much a neighboring town kind of thing. But we've all got this, right? Like, Nathaniel's from a place called Cana, close to Nazareth, but not Nazareth. It's mission, right? Like, can, can anything good come from mission? It's rhetorical. Maybe it's rhetorical. Yeah, we discover something important here about what Nathaniel says and about what we tend to say into some of this stuff. Our God redeems. Let me expand on this. Jesus redeems. A young girl won the Nobel Peace Prize last year. Her name is Malala Yousafzai. She's from Pakistan. At 17, she was the youngest person to win the Nobel Peace Prize ever. And in an acceptance speech to a crowd of dignitaries where she received her prize, she described her paradise home of the Swat Valley before the Taliban gained control. Education went from a right to becoming a crime. Girls were stopped from going to school, she said. She wrote, or she said in her speech, when my world suddenly changed, my priorities changed too. I had two options. One was to remain silent and wait to be killed. And the second was to speak up and then be killed. I chose the second one. I decided to speak up. And she was targeted on a bus and shot in the head by a Taliban gunman in 2012 after drawing attention for her, uh, to her own plight and the plight of other girls like her to get an education. Since her recovery, she, she has become a household name, speaking at the United Nations, meeting Barack Obama, being on the John, da John Stewart show, The Daily Show. It's pretty big. Being named time, uh, one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. I'm talking about a girl, a teenager, from Pakistan, seeking peace and education and getting a Nobel Peace Prize for it. Pretty unlikely. Nazareth, in the mind, in Nathaniel's mind, was a dump. Nothing good came from Nazareth, and yet, the greatest possible thing came out of Nazareth. And what we discover is that this is just another story in the scriptures that seem to happen over and over and over again. That God redeems things. Nazareth, in some people's minds, was a podunk town. Nothing good came from it. So God says, well, where should my son come from? Let's make it this hole-in-the-wall place. It doesn't have a great reputation. The greatest possible thing came out of there, Jesus, the Son of God. This is what God does. He redeems things, podunk towns, oppressed girls, and you and me. By his sacrificial death, Jesus paid for our redemption. 
sometimes because the Bible is, is, is so long, we, 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 need to t- we need to summarize. We need to talk about, well, what does it say in it? And one of the ways that, that we like to do that is talk about creation, fall, redemption, restoration. In the first couple chapters of the Bible, and it's sprinkled throughout, we hear about the creation of the world. And then we hear about the fall in you know, chapter 3 and onward, and then it, of course, that is very sprinkled throughout, the fall and a sin-ravaged world. And then, we, and, and then we see in the Bible the redemption story of, of Jesus coming to redeem things, and that story is pervasive in the Scriptures. And then reconciliation, primarily the last couple chapters of the Bible in Revelation, but also sprinkled throughout this, this theme of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. See, Jesus will make all things new. Created it perfectly, Everything as it ought to be, everything was meant to be, God created it perfectly and there was, it was spotless and good. Jesus, when he returns again, will make things new, will right every wrong, and will reconcile all things. In between is a sin-ravaged world and Jesus bringing redemption to sin-ravaged people, places, and things. And so... We see God in even bringing Jesus out of Nazareth that he redeems things, even insignificant places like Nazareth. And we're actually commissioned as ambassadors of Christ, as ministers of reconciliation, as people who have been redeemed. If you're a Christian, you get to be a part of his redemptive work in the world. This is fascinating to me. We have the privilege of approaching the broken things in the world and working for their redemption and flourishing. See, restoration will come. And yet what we get to do in the meantime is, is come towards the brokenness as Jesus will ultimately do when he returns and try and right some wrongs, try and bring flourishing and beauty to broken and messy and ugly things. We get to be a part of that work here and now, and it's significant. So this means the youth picking up trash on Chilliwack Central Road, that the youth ministry of Central have adopted this block. It's on the sign. And every once in a while... Youth, you know, we think of youth and we think, oh, they're probably the ones who throw the garbage. The youth from Central go out on the street and pick it all up. It's probably essentially forced labor by Pastor John. He gives them donuts after or something. I don't know. But whatever the case may be, on a regular basis, youth are out there picking up the trash on Chilliwack Central Road. That's That's a little thing, right? And yet... Who has more reason than Christians in this world to see our planet flourish, to be, eth- to, be eth- to be earth keepers, to care for it, to tend to the planet? Who has more reason than Christians to do it? Because we believe that Jesus will bring reconciliation and make all things new, and we get to be a part of taking care of it in the meantime. So the youth get up there and pick up trash, and it's actually redemptive work. There you go, youth. I've given you a very theological term. You're doing redemptive work when you're picking up the trash. It's beautiful. This means finding the hurting and homeless in Chilliwack and giving them shelter, resources, and dignity. See, no one else, no one else on earth has more reason to live that way than Christians because we recognize our spiritual poverty without Jesus. We recognize our need. We recognize our homelessness. And if we recognize that Jesus has met us in that, how can we not go outside of these doors and meet people in theirs? You know what's fascinating to me in a sad way is there's enough spare rooms in our homes in the world to house the homeless. But we like to keep our extra stuff there. We like to save it for the three nights in the year that we have a guest sleep there. 
Look, I'm, I'm not forcing that upon you. I'm just simply saying Christians have the opportunity and more reason than anybody in the world to work towards the redeeming of things, the brokenness that's beyond our walls, beyond our doors, meet people in the squalor of their situations and bring them hope. For Jesus has done that for you and for me. We get to be a part of his redemptive work. This means adopting children. This means fostering children who are motherless and fatherless. No one on the planet has more reason to foster children. No one on the planet has more reason to adopt children than Christians. Because we recognize that we were orphans. And that our heavenly father has made us our child through Jesus, our eldest brother who sacrificed his life for us. When you are adopted in as a Christian, you're adopted into the family of God. And you were orphaned before. And and, and Central has caught that. This is a place that fosters and adopts children and it's a beautiful thing. And it makes sense for Christians more than anyone on the planet. This means sharing the hope we have within us to others, the redemption that God has worked in our lives through Christ with others. Is that you? Are you working towards the redemption of things, of people in the world? Because Jesus invites us to participate in that work. In fact, that is the mission of the church. Nathaniel didn't expect anything good to come out of Nazareth. And many people in our, in our society expect nothing good to come out of the church. May the witness of our actions and our words in light of who Jesus is and what he has done paint a different picture. For Jesus redeems. We move on. Verse 44. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, uh, the city of Andrew and Peter. I'm going to reread the same text. We're just going to come at it from a different angle. Th- this is maybe just a, 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 a slight opportunity I have to show us that we can read a text once and see what it says, and then we can come back to it or, or, or study it or meditate on it more and discover more depth. We can never read the Bible and learn what it says. It's just there's, there's always more to discover. So let's read the exact same verses again and discover what else the Lord would have us see in it. That's actually there in the text, by the way. We're not making up stuff. We're seeing what's there, and there is more. Let's look at it again. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip is sharing Jesus with Nathanael and is met with a cynical response. Let me ask you a question. Did Nathaniel want Philip to answer his question when he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Did he want Philip to say, well, let me think about that for a moment. Well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And like begin to like unpack some of the ways in which perhaps good could come out of Nazareth. This is what we call a rhetorical question. Right? Nathaniel hears Philip saying that the Messiah, the one we see, actually we're going to see in a little bit, that, that Nathaniel was a good Israelite, that he was a pious, faithful man. He would have been longing for the Messiah. All of Israel did. Their significance was in the fact that a Messiah was going to come and was going to lead them to international prominence once again and, and, and point them towards right, like 
significance and hope and all of these things. They had particular uh, ideas about what that would look like. And Nathaniel is somebody who was a pious Israelite and would have longed for that to take place. So he's longing for this Messiah, and yet Philip comes along and says, I found the Messiah. And he says, really? From, from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's gotten cynical. See, Nazareth wasn't famous. And by, by most historians' account, it wasn't infamous. There was nothing really about it. Nathaniel was from Canaan. He was just it was a rival place. He's just cynical. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever talked to somebody about Jesus and been met with a cynical response? If you haven't, it just means you haven't shared Jesus very much. <laughs> um, start to talk to somebody about Jesus and you just share how Jesus has affected your life. Right? In First Peter, w- we discover that we're always to be prepared um, to give a defense for the hope that is in us not scientific reason, we are to give a defense for the hope that is within us. We're to be able to share Jesus and how he's impacted my life, how he's impacted your life. At any moment, you should be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you. So you begin to share Jesus with somebody, the hope that is in you. And the person starts to look at you with a bit of a smirk and says, so you think the Noah's Ark thing actually happened? So, okay, you're talking to me about Jesus, and, the, and, and now you're talking, he's in the Bible. So was this Jonah guy swallowed by a whale? Right? It, he doesn't want you to answer it, by the way, or she doesn't. It's rhetorical. Right? Start to look at you sideways and say, so Mary was a virgin. Are you guys sticking with that? You're Christian? So Jesus rose from the dead. Now, that, right? That, that was a story some guys made up. He rose from the dead. You're Christian? Christians are super weird. Christians are hateful. You're a Christian? Comments laced with cynicism. But it's not just those outside of the church that get cynical. Cynicism about all sorts of things sets in for many of us when it comes to faith, the Bible, and the church. We shoot ourselves in the foot when cynicism creeps in to the church. There's a lot of it outside of the church. It is growing, it feels like, inside of the church. Just a cynical comment. A snide remark. So on the one level, that's just what you're feeling. How do I knock that? But on the other level, you're actually hindering your brother in Christ. You're actually hindering your sister in Christ because you make these comments that are cutting. And when I say this to you, I say this to myself. Most of my sense of humor revolves around cynicism. Like I like to make a cynical comment, sarcastic comment. A little bit of a jab in it, right? And so on the one hand, I long for the Lord to redeem that in me and make me less cynical. On the other hand, I worry that I will have no sense of humor left. And, ah! Oh, the tensions of faith, hey? <laughs> we get cynical. Many of us are cynical. 
Here's the hope. Here's the third point. Jesus satisfies. I'm going to read it to you again. I'm doing this intentionally. I want you to hear all of this. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. This is shortly after his cynicism. He's confessing Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. Nathanael didn't really want an answer, and Philip didn't bother to give him one. He just said, come and see. Why? Come and see Jesus, and he'll give you the answers you you really want. Here's the thing. I'm convinced that cynicism is this sort of surface-level commentary. We make the comment about Noah's Ark, not expecting the person to answer us with the dimensions and perhaps, you know, certain animals breeded in particular ways, and so that, you know, this is how they all fit, you know. They're not looking for that. There's this cynical comment, but there's actually deep heart questions that are sitting underneath. Nathaniel did want answers to those. Nathaniel longed for the Messiah. He just needed to believe that it was the Messiah. Nathaniel gives a cynical response, and yet there are sincere heart questions that lie underneath of that. What we discover here is that Jesus is able to address those, getting past the cynicism to the real issues and answers that Nathaniel longs for. And when he discovered what he was longing for was found in Jesus, he was in. These are questions that revolve around us or that are around us today. Why can't salvation come from other religions too? Why such exclusivity with Jesus? I'm not going to attempt to answer these questions, but there are good responses to them. I want us to just dig a little bit deeper than the cynical comment. There's a fundamental difference between how all other religions operate and tell us to attain salvation and the way described in the gospel. There's a fundamental difference. All other major faiths have a founder who teaches and teachers who show the way to salvation. Here's what you've got to do. They're they're a founder who's a teacher who shows people what they've got to do to attain salvation. Only Jesus claimed to actually be the way of salvation himself. It boils down to the question of whether or not salvation comes through moral effort or a total paradigm shift, which is the grace of the gospel. So we, 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 it gets a little prickly when we start talking exclusivity of Christ and we begin to get cynical about that and think, well, why can't people just find their own way? Why can't people just find what's right for them, their journey, their faith, find what works for them, go their own way? Well, see, what we find in the exclusivity of Christ, though, is the only faith that says you can't do it, but I have done it for you and simply accept what I have accomplished. You need not accomplish a thing. And so what's offered is the free gift of grace. And when we wrestle with questions like this through, when we wrestle them through, we come through the other side not cynical, but with deeper and more sincere worship, recognizing more about the depths of his grace. See, if we get cynical about um, exclusivity, We don't think much of grace because we think people can just simply find their way. What works for them? Why can't they just have that faith while I have this faith? And yet when we 
when we get less cynical and we pursue with our head and our heart after um, these kinds of big questions that deserve a lot of time and come to see that Jesus is the only one who offers his spotless record for us, is the only one who offers grace, truly. Takes us from cynicism to deeper worship than we've ever had before. I'm not expected to take the Bible literally, am I? What should I do about the parts of the Bible that I find outrageous? Right? And then we begin to make the comments about the things that just seem odd. It's not typically the passages that speak directly about Jesus that raise these types of concerns, but the ones about the less primary teachings, what the Bible says about slavery or gender, killing, death, sex, and these things that seem offensive to our modern ears. Interestingly, again, I'm not trying to answer all this or respond to all of this here, but just interestingly, Jesus quotes the Old Testament numerous times. He refers to people like Jonah as actual people and teaches his disciples about how the scriptures point to and find their fulfillment in him. Look at Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In John chapter 5, just a few chapters later than the text we're looking at this morning, John chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus said, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Moses is the writer, is, is attributed to uh, the Pentateuch, Matthew, Mar- uh, the Pentateuch, John, <laughs> Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament. And Jesus is speaking and says, there was a man named Moses who actually lived, who actually wrote things down that were true. And he wrote about me. And if you're not going to believe him, how are you going to believe me? Interesting to think about, right? Because some of the core claims of Jesus and what he was about, a lot of people latch onto and say, great, yeah, but what about all this slavery stuff and what looks like ethnic cleansing in the Old Testament? What do I do with that? They would say. So I want us to take a look at vantage point here. And I think what Timothy Keller said in The Reason for God is really helpful. If if some of the questions that I'm asking and just scratching the surface on are intriguing to you or questions you have, I encourage you, there's very few books that you'll find uh, more helpful than The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. Here's what he says. This is really helpful for us in these kinds of dialogues. If you dive into the shallow end of the biblical pool, he says, where there are many controversies over interpretation, you may get scraped up. But if you dive into the center of the biblical pool, where there is consensus about the deity of Christ, his death and resurrection, right? Apostles' creed type stuff, creedal things. He says, you will be safe. It is therefore important to consider the Bible's core claims about who Jesus is and whether he rose from the dead before you reject it for its less central and more controversial teaching. I don't want you to hear, just believe the Jesus parts, Don't worry about the rest. Jesus says all the scripture is about him. We need to get there, but we needed to look at through the lens of believing what the Bible ultimately says about redemption and salvation and go from there. Meaning when we deal with who Jesus is in our lives, then about what he says about scripture, and then then use that lens to view all of scripture, we tend to lend ourselves to the why questions in the Bible differently than if we're looking for a fight, an out, or simply to get cynical over a theme or text of scripture. 
without doing the diligent work of wrestling with Christianity's central claims and then pressing in to discover the context and meaning of some of these so-called challenging texts. See, having faith in anything, by the way, takes the head and the heart. For you to look at what Christianity claims and say, forget it and go somewhere else, wherever you're going takes faith. And it takes the head, it's got to make sense, and it takes the heart. It's got to feel, it's got to, it's, right? It's got to feel right. So anywhere you go outside of Christianity, you're going somewhere and you're putting faith in that thing. See, Christianity isn't simply a faith or the faith. You're going to have faith in something. So, so what Jesus is, is, is speaking to Nathaniel here is he speaking to Nathaniel's head and his heart? Nathaniel's got some problems here. It's not making sense to him. He's got some questions, he's got some doubts, and he's a bit cynical. And Jesus comes along and responds to some things that blow him away, showing Jesus can satisfy both. Jesus gets at the heart issues underneath and satisfies Nathaniel's head and heart. There are good answers to hard questions. So my encouragement is to choose devotion to Jesus and discovering head and heart responses instead of cynicism. See, Philip finds Nathaniel cynical. Really? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip simply responds, come and see. Encounter Jesus for yourself. Draw close and ask those questions with heart and mind to discover, to wrestle, to pray that God would connect some dots that aren't connecting. For cynicism will only discourage you and the people who have to live around you. <laughs> William Barclay said of Nathaniel, Nathaniel capitulated, essentially Nathaniel surrendered forever to the man who read and understood and satisfied his heart. And you and I are no different. Jesus can read, understand, and satisfy your heart. He can. And as we discovered last week, our hearts are restless until they rest in Jesus. He, he satisfies like no, nothing else on the planet because he created the planet and the universe beyond and your heart for himself. Jesus satisfies. We go on. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Okay, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see even greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you. That was promise number one, by the way. Here's another one. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus promises. There are promises that we have in Jesus. He reveals just a couple of them here for Nathaniel. And he actually uses the word plurally. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, plural, so that's to all who believe, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus promises. I say in the title, Fig Tree, Schmig Tree, because Jesus is with Nathaniel and says, because I saw you under the fig tree before Philip even arrived and I just told you that, you're blown away. You believe I am who I am. Man, you ain't seen nothing yet. Fig tree, schmig tree, my friends. This is Nathaniel, also referred to as Bartholomew in some places in the scriptures. Nathaniel would be one of the ones who would see Jesus feed the 5,000. He would see Jesus give sight to the blind, heal the paralyzed, help them walk, raise the dead to life, be raised himself on the third day, ascend to heaven, right? Give the Holy Spirit 
to his followers. He would see greater things than him sitting under the fig tree before he encountered Jesus. He would see these greater things. But this is not simply a promise to the first 12 disciples. This is a promise to all. Look at how John chapter 12 writes it. Uh, John chapter 14, sorry, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will you do. Because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So the question arises, how possibly will we do greater works in the world than even Jesus? Right Next week, we're going to see Jesus turning water into wine. That is a sweet miracle. Right? Maybe we could save some budget money here if we just simply poured hot water into our coffee urns and it just turned to coffee. I haven't tried that yet, by the way. But you know, like, I just think to myself, oh, but, but I, I can't do that. Jesus could do that stuff. But he says, greater things even will you do. What, what does that mean? What kind of greater things can we do than Jesus did? We will do greater things than these that Jesus speaks about because he has gone to be with the Father and he is interceding for us and he is commissioning us. He is working for those who are his. He equips us, he gives us, he gifts us the Holy Spirit and empowers us to go about doing that ministry. So if Jesus was walking in Israel right now, he would be walking in Israel and yet here we are in Chilliwack. Well, Jesus gives his followers and he spreads them throughout the earth. And he empowers them by the power of the Holy Spirit to go about his redemptive work in the world. And when we go about that work and we believe that he will do it, when we pray, God, will you bring children to our church, we can believe that he will. And years later, he opens the floodgates, as with the rain right now that we hear, and just boom, he answers those. He does these things. How possibly will we do greater works than these? Well, we recognize that we will because it's work with Jesus. His purposes are extended through multiplying believers and expanding the church through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. King Jesus works through the priesthood of all believers. And then he makes one final promise as we close. We see that he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You will see that. Jesus is alluding to Jacob here, by the way, uh, Genesis chapter 28. But he already alluded to Jacob in a more subtle way in verse 47 when he called Nathanael an Israelite in whom there was no deceit. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. We see it in Genesis chapter 32, Genesis chapter 35. God takes this man, man named Jacob and renames him Israel. And up until that point, there was a lot of deceit. In Jacob, he was a devious and crafty guy from day one, grabbing the heel of his brother Esau at birth, jockeying for position. He stole his brother's birthright and blessing from his brother. He snuck in and got that eldest brother blessing, which was the, the big kahuna blessing. And he just snuck in and grabbed it. His name was Jacob, which meant he takes the heel. But, an, but there's another meaning to the name Jacob, and it's that he cheats. Jacob's name was he cheats. And up until that point, it was extremely accurate. But God comes in, approaches Jacob, and says, you will be called Israel. Israel means he strives with God, or God strives. Speaking of redeeming things, right? I'm going to take this liar and cheat. I'm going to take him from his name, he cheats, to God strives. And I'm going to absolutely transform your life. That is a great picture. It's unbelievable. 
And he gives, bestows on Jacob an, a, a blessing that was given to Abraham and uses him and his family for God's redemptive purposes in the world. So to call Nathaniel an Israelite in whom there was no deceit likely speaks to the faithful piety of Nathaniel. But it's probably a pretty tongue-in-cheek line too because it's Israel is Jacob and Jacob was a liar. And he says, you're Israel in whom there's no deceit. I don't know, it's a pretty awesome line actually. But now Jesus is alluding again to Jacob, alluding to the dream Jacob had that we read about in Genesis 28, referred to as Jacob's ladder. Uh, here's how that story goes. Jacob is fleeing from his brother because he stole his birthright. He stole his blessing. And now he's on the run and he's only got the clothes on his back. And we even see him in Genesis chapter 8 uh, laying down to sleep. And he has so little with him that he takes a rock, puts it under his head and uses it for a pillow. I mean, if I'm in that situation, I'm not sure if I'm, I, I think I'd rather go no pillow. Regardless, he grabs a rock, puts it under his head. That is his pillow that night. That's all he's got. He's got nothing. He's running. He's fleeing. He's been crafty. And he has a dream. And there is this dream where where he is, this ladder is ascending into the heavens. And angels are descending on this ladder and ascending on this ladder. I think there's a song about this. Anyways, and so what's happening there is this this dream is happening. He wakes up, and here's what he says in Genesis chapter 28, verse 16. Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he says, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven, he says. In Genesis chapter 28, the latter scene is a dream. But here the disciples are being told that they will see it for themselves where Jacob declared that God was in that place, and he named that place Bethel, which means the house of God, Jesus declares that where he is, God is. When they are with Jesus, they are with God. Where Jacob says, this is the house of God in that place, Jesus declares that he is the house of God. Where Jacob says that the place was the gateway to heaven, Jesus declares that he was the way to heaven. And where Jacob concludes, how awesome is this place? The disciples come to discover as they observe Jesus, how awesome is this Savior? How awesome is Jesus Christ? For we do not climb up our way to God. God and Christ came down to us. How awesome is he? When Jacob had that dream of a ladder reaching up to heaven and angels going up and down, he was in the midst of fleeing, not a penny to his name and no home. When he, encountered, when, he, when he had his encounter with God, he met him in his need and promised peace and prosperity in a homeland. Well, for each one of us, Jesus meets us in our need, in our poverty, with nothing in our own devices to get us out of the mess we're in. And he comes to bring us peace. He comes to bring us spiritual riches, true prosperity, and security in an eternal homeland. At great expense to himself, he extends grace and hope to you and to me, and we get to simply respond in faith. Let's pray, and then let's respond as we continue to worship. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. God, I, I give you praise for this, this text that, that wants to encourage us and challenge us and shape us in so many ways. It's so rich. 
Thank you, Lord, that we can look 2,000 years ago and look at Philip and Nathaniel beginning to follow. Their stories are unique, Lord, for sure. And yet we can hear ourselves in it. At one point in each of our lives, you, you came alongside of us said, follow me. And if we've never responded to that call, or we have the opportunity here and now to follow after you, thank you for that. Thank you, God, that uh, you take cynics like me. And you give us some good answers to some hard questions, and you begin to soften our tongues. Thank you, God, that you care about the deep-seated heart questions that maybe our minds and our hearts are stuck on, and you care about those. Jesus, you show us that you care about those kinds of questions, and we at Central love our people here and care about those questions, concerns, and cynicisms as well. Lord, would you free us from the cynicism that, that, that hurts us and hurts those around us and, 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 um, and hurts our hurts our witness in the world and give, give us good answers to those hard questions that give us deeper faith, more sincere worship, and greater walk with you. Lord God, thank you that you've called us to be a part of your ministry, which is redeeming people, places, and things. God, thank you for that opportunity. We long to do that in the communities around us and in the people in our lives. Lord, by your spirit, would you commission us to do your ministry alongside of you and to point people in broken situations and messes, whatever they are, to the hope that's in you. May we give credibility to that in the way that we act and in the way that we speak. God, would you empower us as your servants to go there and to do that. And finally, Lord, thank you that you are our access to the heavens, that you are our access to the Father, and you have made yourself available to us. May we respond in faith. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand and we'll respond.
great Sunday.